Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 50 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union, better known as DCU. Not only is DCU a great place to do your banking at, but they're also a great place to work at. And they are hiring right now for full and part-time positions for several of their branch locations throughout Massachusetts and New Hampshire. So if you, a friend, or a family member is looking for a career change or to start a new career at a credit union making a difference for their members and their employees, just visit dcu.org careers. DCU is proud to be an equal employment opportunity and affirmative action employer. Just visit dcu.org slash careers. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by mistresscarry.com, which is where you can find every episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast. Not just the weekly episodes, but also every episode of the Situation Report, which you get Monday through Friday. It takes all of five minutes to give you all the rock news, industry info, and music headlines. Plus, you can find every episode of Cocktails in the War Room. There's now 130-something of those, too. It's crazy. There's my photo galleries, my blog, the events calendar that is quickly filling up with amazing concerts, and you can shop in the official online Mistress Carrie store and get T-shirts, hoodies, beanies, even baby onesies for those lockdown babies. Just go to mistresscarry.com. Okay, this week's guest is someone I had never met before. I had heard about the band Dead Poet Society because they spawned in Boston, but I never talked to Jack Undercoffler before. I didn't even know how to pronounce his name. I actually asked him to make sure I didn't screw it up. And I knew he went to college in Boston. I mean, the band formed at Berklee College of Music, but I wasn't aware that he was born here. And we had a great conversation while he was sipping margaritas in a seafoam green room with no furniture. But we'll get to that. He and I talked about everything. We talked about the brain, Ancestry.com. We talked about musical influence and his parents, starting a band in a place like Berkeley, and the difference between being a classically trained musician versus a musician that plays by feel. And of course, we also talked about Dead Poet Society's new album, which he had to explain to me how to describe the title because it's a dash and an exclamation point and a dash and it's available now. I thought it was so cool and really funny and super interesting and we totally hit it off and I can't wait for you to get to know him. So allow me to introduce you to Jack Undercoffler from Dead Poet Society. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely, pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, 
Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed. You're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to... You have the privilege of listening to Mistress Carrie. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Jack, don't say anything funny until I hit record. That's the rule. I'm not saying shit. (laughs) Welcome to uh, the Mistress Carrie podcast. It seems like for some reason recently I've been talking to artists that have ties to Boston. I talked to Diamante recently, who was born in Boston and then moved away when she was 12. You moved to Boston to go to school and then, I mean, I don't even know where to start. (laughs) Well, funny fact, I was actually born in Boston and then I lived there until I was about seven and then I moved to Virginia and then when I was 18, I moved back to Boston and lived there until I was 23. So the funny part of the conversation I had with Diamante is that even though she moved away when she was 12, that Boston thing in her was there when she moved away when she was 12. Even Mm -hmm. though you were seven and went to Virginia, were you different from the other kids because you were born in Boston? I feel like it. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, like I have a lot of like Boston is my favorite place on earth and I'm not just like saying that, but it's like, my number one place, if I had to pick any place to live, Boston would be it. Um, but I think I got like a little bit of that. Definitely. I, I'm a little hesitant to say like I am from Boston because there's a lot of pride in Boston and being from there and whatnot. And like, I absolutely love it. But to be honest, I don't really feel like I can say I'm from there because I spent the formative years of my life in Virginia. But Boston is my favorite place on earth. I mean, fun. listen, you were born there. Can I born here, by the way? Huh? Can I swear on here, by the way? Fuck yeah, dude. It's a podcast. Okay, okay, okay. When I put stuff on the radio, I'll edit out the F words. But for the <laughs> internet, yeah, dude, just say whatever the hell you want. That's the beauty of it. I just yeah. have to, in my head, be careful. Because for so many years, I was just on the radio. Couldn't swear. Then I was just on a podcast. Could say anything I wanted. Now I do both. And it's like, oh, I got to be careful. I can't mix up the gigs. No chocolate in my peanut butter, man. For sure. Yeah. But, um, you gotta be careful. You can't put the chocolate in the peanut butter. No, no, but you can, that that's pretty fucking good. But yeah, well, yeah, it yeah. is good. See, you sound like a Bostonian. Don't tell me here's how it works. I know. Here's how it works. You were born there. So you're always going to be a Bostonian, but the fact that you came back, there are people that are not from Boston. Like look at big poppy. He's a Bostonian. Mm-hmm. Even though he was not born and raised there. So I am giving, I'm knighting you. I'm giving. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. I'm giving you permission. You're allowed. You're allowed to say that you're a Bostonian, Jack. And Fuck yeah. All right, sweet. And we're proud to have you. You know, Boston has a really proud rock lineage. And it's nice to know that there's still great music coming out of our city. Oh, well, thank you very much. You know, speaking of rock lineage, I lived in Alston um, for a year and my last year at, at Berkeley. And uh, the, uh, the, um, the, the fucking Aerosmith, Aerosmith, 
used to live in an apartment literally down the street from me. And they went and played a free show out front of there. Were you at that show? I was there. I rode in the duck boats with them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Tom Brady was there. Everybody was there. That show was so sick. And it was like at nine in the morning. Yeah, it was totally random. It shut the city down. And they put a plaque on the building, right? And I talked to the guys from Dirty Honey because when they came to Boston for the first time, when I was still at WAF, they're such huge Aerosmith fans that they were like, we want to go to the Aerosmith house. So they went and they were like, this is it. It's just a plaque on the wall. Like they can do better than that for Aerosmith. And they were like a little let down because it was just like this little brass historical marker on that building in Alston. Well, there was that one liquor store like right across the street from that from their apartment, their old apartment that had this like big neon sign out front that they eventually took down. But every uh, that's the liquor store I would go to, to go buy, you know, whatever I was buying. And, and, uh, I, and whenever I was in there, I was just always like, Whoa, this is kind of fucking cool. Like Aerosmith would go and buy like a, a handle or something and then go back and they were in this place. It was so sick. Yeah. It's not a liquor store though. Come on. You know what to call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it, what do you mean? What do you mean? It's the packy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the packy. Come on. <laughs> so tell me, I want to start from the beginning because I'll tell you how I heard about you guys is that a lot of my friends in the industry, obviously knowing what a loud and proud Bostonian I am, were like, you need to know about this band because sometimes the bands that were coming out of Berkeley everybody wouldn't necessarily hear about. And so they were like, do you know about Ted Poet Society? You need to know about this band. Listen to it. Tell us what you think. I was like, hell yeah. So when we set up this interview, because I've never met you before, I was so psyched that I got to talk to you because I'm so happy that after the loss of a station like WAF, that there is still a, a bubbling rock scene under the surface and that there is still amazing rock coming out of this area. And I, well, I, I was psyched. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad that, that, you've, that you are saying that to me because I feel like a lot of people in this sort of scene that I'm in and I'm just at the, I'm at the infancy side of it. You know, we're a pretty small band compared to a lot of these other bands that are kind of forming rock, like this new wave of rock coming out. But I just, I think it's so awesome to be a part of this generation of rock because I feel like it kind of lost its way for a little bit. Like people weren't saying anything anymore. It was all this like stomp, clap, fucking Ford commercial bullshit. And it was just like, and whenever I'd hear a song, it was just like, oh, and I was just like, oh, this is fucking cringy. It's like, it fits in a Target commercial, but that's about it. And then, you know, bands like um, Royal Blood and Nothing But Thieves and more recently like Cleopatric and Highly Suspect came out and they were, they're all like saying shit now. Like they're actually, they're talking about things and, and that are very personal. And I felt like that's what kind of rocks straight away from because of um, just, just, you know, older musicians trying to, I, no, no offense to older musicians, you eventually have, not that you run out of things to say, but the relevance of the evolution of music, older musicians pass on that baton. And what was happening was younger musicians weren't taking that baton. Cause I feel like in rock, there's this ultimate reverence 
for older musicians, which justifiably, you know, like air, you know, ACDC, Led Zeppelin, all the fucking greats out there created something that, that is, you know, incredible. But, but I felt like my generation and the generation, you know, that whole like early two thousands to mid, you know, the tens kind of thing, you got this, uh, like it can never be recreated again. It's not, it's over, it's, it's done. But in reality, it's music is an evolution. Music is constantly evolving. And when you look at these older generations, it's not like, wow, you guys did so great. It's a baton race. The music should change. It should sound different. It should turn into something else. And what was happening is that these older bands were handing the baton off and nobody was, nobody's taking it. Nobody's taking it. And, and so I felt like I wanted to be a part of that wave of musicians that, that are like, let's see where rock goes. It might not end up sounding like rock in the end, or it might sound, turn into something different, but I want to be a part of that wave. And I feel like we're starting to get in that point where we can like stand amongst people like Royal Blood and nothing but these and things like that. People are saying things. That's what we're striving to do. And, and uh, so, yeah, that's what I'm, I'm happy that you said that about rock because. Well, the thing is, nothing happens in a vacuum, right? I had this amazing conversation with one of my spirit animal women in rock and roll, this woman named Karen Durcott, who worked in the record industry from like the late 70s until very recently when she retired. Like this woman worked Appetite for Destruction at radio, okay? This woman, when women weren't doing these things, and her and I went through this encyclopedic timeline of, of rock music that she experienced in the front row, right? And the, the era that you're talking about, very important things happened. And the biggest thing, the elephant in the room of that era was the technology change. And in mm. a lot of ways, music was devalued in that era because it became something some people thought they didn't need to pay for. It became mm-hmm. something people thought they should be able to just take from the artists. And technology changed everything. It changed how you promoted bands. It changed how radio worked. It changed how you listened to music. It started changing it from an album where you released a whole record with something to say to can I get a song in a Target commercial because that's the only way I'm going to make any money. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. so and so the technology influenced the art as much as the art then influenced the technology. And if you look at it from that 50,000 foot view, you can kind of see of all of the art forms that are the most dependent on having something to say, building a loyal fan base and putting together a cohesive product and message rock music had the most to lose by what happened. Mm -hmm. And so it's no wonder that our format really took a beating. And we all know that it happened. The Mm -hmm. thing is, and and this comes up a lot in the podcast, I always apologize to the people that listen to every episode because sometimes the same things come up, is that in this day and age, with as much of the divisiveness that's out there, And as isolated as we all are, out of any genre of music, rock music is the most inclusive, right? 
We don't mm-hmm. care your tattoos. We don't care what you do for a living. We don't care who you love. We don't care about any of it. Do you want to stand sweaty, nut to butt with me at a show and get yeah. beer spilled down my back? Do you want to scream and sing as loud as you can and love this music because it's in your soul? And if you do, then we're cool. Yeah, absolutely. That that is that is something that is so unbelievably true in in the rock genre that I don't think a lot of people realize because you really have to go to like a you really got to go to like a basement show in the middle of Austin to really experience what is about because to be honest my favorite memories are playing sweaty little basements with 60 people packed into a room that only should fit 20 and and just going just losing your shit I mean like we started we got our start down in Mexico originally and um and yeah, yeah, we had we had a YouTuber named uh, Joe who had a um, YouTube page called Pepe Problemas, and um, he shouted us out on his YouTube page. But he also happened to have a band, so we reached out to him. We were like, "Can we open for you?" And he's like, "Fuck yeah, let's do this!" And uh, and like, yeah, quick little side story. He he was like, "Yeah, just come down whenever. Just tell me when you buy tickets. I'll book shows." So like a few weeks went by after this happened. We were like, fuck, we should buy those tickets. We should buy those tickets. And we had like a sync license come through and we had $1,400 in the account. And I looked at it, the tickets, and it was $1,400 to get to Mexico City. And we're like, fuck it, let's just book it. Booked, booked a tour in like middle of February. It was just like six or seven shows. Went down there, had the fucking time of our lives. Cause I reached out, I was like, yo, I booked these tickets. And he was like, oh fuck, you're actually coming. Okay, that's cool. And uh, he booked us a bunch of shows which ties into what I was going to say is that we booked us this show in this place called Tampico in the middle of the state called Tamaulipas. And this place was like, it was like level four, do not travel on the U S warning list. It was like, do not go there. It was like, there's active kidnappings daily. Like it was like, don't fucking go there. And we, we were just kind of like, well, fuck it. Like, Let's just do What's it. What's the worst like, that could happen? We end up needing to call the state department for a rescue by SEAL Team 6, but who cares? Yeah, but like, fuck it, you know, it's rock. <laughs> and so, so we ended up going there and it was just a fucking incredible experience because one, we're the, we're the only four white dudes in, in, in probably the entire state because like, and we knew that because we walked outside of our hotel and there were cars stopping and people like looking at us like, what the fuck? And you're a pretty white guy, dude. You're legitimately almost clear. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're you're Caucasian. (laughs) I'm pretty sure the only reason you can see that I'm here is because of my eyeballs. Cause I'm just (laughs) blending into the ceiling in the background. But, but, but fucking, we went to an El Pollo Loco across the street. The entire kitchen staff came out and took pictures with us because they were heard we were in a band and we we're just a bunch of white dudes. <laughs> but what I'm getting to is that we ended up going and playing a show, and like we're the only people that speak English, and we do, and we hardly speak Spanish. I desperately tried to learn Spanish before we went, so I had like you know I could say some some shit, but it was like the entire experience. You don't even recognize that like. These people are from a different country or you speak a different language or you look any different. It's just like you're there sharing an emotional moment that transcends all of that. You're a rock fan, period. End of story. Yeah, you're a rock fan. It was a really long winded way of saying that. But yeah, you know what I think is funny about that story is that you were able to afford the tickets because you said a sync license came in. 
And for anybody listening that doesn't know kind of industry lingo, a sync license is money that you guys got because somebody was using your music for something like a Target commercial. (laughs) But we weren't making it for that shit. That's the difference. (laughs) Probably why we haven't had many syncs since. But But no, I actually think it was like, I think it was like the Rhode Island like fire department. I'm pretty sure that's where we got that sync license from. That is hilarious. Well, I want to, um, I want to go back to the beginning because one of the things that I started this podcast to do was to keep the rock community together. Mm-hmm. Another thing I started it for was to keep people in touch with their favorite bands. And the other reason I started it was to have a place to be able to introduce people to new bands because those places are getting harder and harder to find. Even though we have this big worldwide web, it's mm-hmm. hard when you're a new band to get anybody to learn who you are because there's yeah. so much going on all the time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I want to talk about you growing up. So you're born in Boston. You're there until you're seven. Were your parents rock music fans? How old were you when you got exposed to this music? To be honest, I wasn't, it wasn't until like probably like middle school that I first started listening to rock because I grew up on, uh, my parents did not listen to rock whatsoever. Uh, I grew up pretty much purely on Chet Baker, Earth, Wind and Fire and Frank Sinatra. Like those are the three artists that I remember playing all the time. Household. And, uh, and when I started playing guitar was around like 12 years old. And uh, my dad, I went, you know, begged my parents to let me play the guitar and eventually they got me lessons. And then a couple months into learning into into these lessons, my uh, dad got me this like Bob Dylan's essentials book. And it came with the, like, you know, like in Starbucks, how PBS used to sell like the essentials albums, like right next to the, yeah, it was one of those things. And it came with a little chord book and I just went through and learned all the songs and like, you know, Bob Dylan had his like little beginning of rock phase. And then that sort of introduced me to like Jimi Hendrix when I found out like all along the watchtower was like, was like, you know, performed, you know, covered by Jimi Hendrix. And then that led into, you know, like what else is out there? I started listening to like rock radio stations. Like in my hometown is this radio station called 96X and I discovered Green Day and then like this band called Alter Bridge. And, uh, and I just dove into it. But, you know, it's funny is listening, growing up on such a limited range of music, I have massive, massive holes in my music vocabulary, like where people will show me stuff from like Radiohead that was like their number one hit. I'm like, I've never heard this song before. This is kind of cool. What is this? Well, your parents, they may have been limited in their musical scope, but they had really good taste in music that they did listen to. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Earth, Wind and Fire, Bob Dylan, like at least you were getting exposed to amazing musicianship. Yeah, extremely good musicianship. And songwriting and it, ability, too, especially. I mean, if you're going to be a songwriter, Bob Dylan is kind of. Oh, he's the ultimate. Yeah. It's like him, Bruce Springsteen. And yeah, that's like Paul the McCartney. Paul McCartney. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I. I think that's why that my dad got that book for me. Cause he was just like, Oh, like songwriting, you know, like from his outside perspective, he was kind of like, yeah, if he wants to write songs like Bob Dylan, let's do this. What was your first guitar? 
my first guitar was a Yamaha acoustic that I still have at my parents' house back in uh, Virginia. And uh, I, every time I'm home, I play it. It's still, it has strings on it that I think are like probably 15 years old at this point. And uh, at one point I tried to learn slide guitar. And so I, I like ripped the nut off of the, off of the neck of the guitar and like put like a piece of paper under it. So like the action is like way too high to be seriously playing it, but I'll still play it whenever I go home. I love that you still have it. And I love that you don't even have possession of it, that your parents are like, you were going to keep this. Cause you I'm know, that saving shit there that. Because they're saving I've that had... shit for eBay, man. When you're like huge and famous, they're going to be like, they're going to be like, yeah, we're paying off the house. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I'm going to let them keep that shit because I've had so many guitars stolen from me. I do not trust myself with that. I've had two, three, three guitars stolen from me. That shit happens. It's so funny, all the musicians that I've talked to over the years that have had either their gear or stuff stolen from them in Boston. <laughs> Slash Slash had one of his original top hats stolen in Boston. Never got it back. Oh, that's a fucking bummer. Yeah. And like bands, like whole trailers. I think the Creed guys, I think Mark Tremonti told me that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was Mark Tremonti. The Creed guys, when they were, when like my own prison hit, like the first time they came to Boston, they played for AAF. They Mm -hmm. had their whole trailer stolen. And there was like this Les Paul that Mark's parents had given him that was like expensive <clears throat> in that trailer and they never got it back. And and I've talked to all the guys from the band, even as recently as like a year ago or a year and a half ago, right before COVID. And they were like, "We're there's a reward. Like Mark just wants that guitar back because his parents gave it to him. But shit oh. always gets stolen in Boston. Oh yeah. Well, it's, it's the same thing out here. It's, it's ridiculous out here. I like, we went and played a show in uh, San Francisco and uh, we parked our car out front of the venue, walked inside to say hello to everybody, came back out. Somebody smashed two windows, stole our drummer's laptop. Like it, like getting raw, getting your car smashed into in San Francisco. It's like a It's like a hobby. It's like a fucking hobby up there. You start noticing all around the city that there's just broken glass everywhere. That it's is insane. so crazy. All right. So you- sorry, sorry. Real quick, real yeah. quick. I just want to ask something. Were you at that, that Alter Bridge show? And I think it was like 2014-ish where they played, um, oh, what is that one? The one venue, the Royale or something like that? Oh, yeah, Royale. Yeah, yeah. It used to be, um, it's, it's right down um, in the theater district. Yeah, yeah. It the used the to be called district. the Roxy. And then they named it Royale years later. Oh, okay. Well, probably a good move. Probably a good move would have made Yeah, SEO that's a cool room to see a show. We used to have, the radio station used to have its Halloween parties there. Oh, really? Yeah. It's a dope venue. Really I got cool a funny venue. little story about, about Alter Bridge at that venue. Um, I went there to see them play and I had them sign my laptop because it was the only thing I had at the time and they signed it. Um, so at the very last minute, they were like, well, we have VIP tickets, some left over, 150 bucks. And I was like, I think I have 150 bucks in my account. So I, I like went up, charged it, the car went through. I was like, fuck yeah. Went in. Miles Kennedy was actually sick during that show. So he was at the doctor. And the VIP thing, they you got to watch them sound check. And I went like right up to the front. And I was just like standing there like, oh my God, there's like Mark Tremonti standing right in front of me. 
And he goes, so Miles is sick, but we need a sound check. Like, does anybody know, can anybody play guitar? I was like, yo, me. And, and he was kind of like surprised at how like, like forward I was about it. And he was like, what do you want to play? I was like, find the reel. And he was like, love that okay. song. Says, so fucking dope. I love that song. That was the first song I ever heard by them. And I went up on stage and played and sang on stage with them. And I, I nearly shit myself that it was so insane. That is crazy. And, and listen, Mark Tremonti, a guy worth looking up to for two reasons. One, he is an unbelievably technical guitar player and does not get yeah. a, the credit, I think, with a lot of people for being the prolific player that he is. He's and, incredible. And two, he's such a fucking nice guy. Mm-hmm. He's just a nice guy for a guy that sold 10 gazillion albums that doesn't have to get out of bed for the rest of his life because, you know, and not even because of Target commercials, because people just went out and bought his music, bought his fucking music. Yeah, that like he doesn't have to be that nice, but he just is. Yeah, he really seems like it. I mean, I've, I've never had a conversation with him before, but he, he seems like just like a genuinely good person. Yeah, that's so funny that that's got to be a Boston thing, too. Years ago, when when Incubus released like their first record, they played a show for us at uh, Axis way back in the day, which is now part of the House of Blues complex in Boston. And Mm -hmm. Brandon Boyd got sick, got laryngitis couldn't sing band didn't want to like we were helping to break the band at the time because it it fucking snows and then it's 80 degrees with 90 percent humidity the next day that's why (laughs) so he couldn't sing and incubus didn't want to cancel the show so Uh they asked everybody in the crowd who could sing the incubus songs and they pulled fans out of the crowd and they sang the actual show in place of brandon boyd and I asked the guys in the band that, and they're like, it's the only time it's ever happened, and it will never happen again. <laughs> no, fuck it. I honestly, I would rather go, I mean, not rather go see that show, because of course you want to see him play, but like, that is a fucking experience right there, because that's a show. You in were itself. at that one show the one time that it happened. Exactly. You get yeah. to say that shit. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. All right. So you get your guitar and you mm-hmm. start learning songwriting from Bob Dylan and I love the fact that you credit the radio station that you grew up listening to with part of why you discovered the music you love because Mm -hmm. coming from someone that spent their whole career in radio it's nice to hear I mean the artists always talk about like the first time you heard your record on the radio or whatever but I love hearing that people are like, no, the first time I heard that band was on the radio. It was on your show or on your station or whatever. So I love that you credit a radio station with helping to kind of form your musical love. When did you go from being a kid with a guitar that had his dad paying for some lessons to being someone that realized you might actually be good at it? Oh, jeez. I don't even know if I'm, I don't even know yet if I'm good at it. I'm just fucking <laughs> shitting along, hoping no, something but happens. Listen, there's a difference between a kid that grabs some sticks and jumps behind a drum kit. There's a difference between somebody that sings along to the radio and somebody that can keep a beat and, and, and keep a tone and like hit the right note. I yeah. could pick up a guitar and take lessons and never be good at it. 
never be able to write a song, never be able to play in a band. I just don't have the ability. So there has to be like, was it, was it mastering a Hendrix tune? Like there had to be something that you realize like, okay, I might actually be good at this. I think that it was in, I mean, if I had to trace it back to a moment, I think it would be like, I remember being in high school in probably, I think, 10th grade, I wrote my first song, my first like song song. And I remember doing it just one night. I had like, do you remember photo booth on the, on the Mac, on like the Macs, you know, the little thing yeah. that you can click and take a picture of yourself. <laughs> so I had a video recording option. And I was sitting there with my, I think my sister was in college at the time. And so she had her laptop at the house. And I think I stole it and had photo booth open and um, was just like, all right, I'm going to write a song. I'm just going to hit record on this and I'm just going to write something, learn it, like stop it, listen to it back, learn it, and then move on to the next thing. And I'm just, and in a few hours I had a song. It was like the first song I'd ever written and I went and showed my friends the next day at school. And they were like, whoa, dude, you wrote that? Like, that's awesome. And it was some shitty song, but it was like, we're Was it like, just guitar or were you, or were you writing lyrics too? No, it was lyrics. It was lyrics, melody, guitar, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and I went and performed it for them. And, and watching their reactions, it was just kind of like, whoa, that's kind of cool. What was the name yeah. of it? Do you remember? It was called Indigo and Gray. I do remember it. It was called <laughs> Indigo and Gray. So I'm fucking, I was going through, this is when I started to get into my like John Mayer phase because any kid that's picked up a guitar who's my age was, you know, just obsessed with John Mayer. Yeah, you, know? you, you pick up a guitar for two reasons. You want to make money or you want to get late. And nobody yeah. does both better than John Mayer. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. The guy's a prodigy in many different ways. That's I'll say right. that. And, uh... <laughs> And so, yeah, so you just see, you know, you're just like, holy fuck, this guy can play and he gets laid and it's like, wow, okay, that's something, that's incredible. Not just laid, okay. laid well. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh my God, yeah. Are you kidding me? God. So, um, so fucking, uh, I, like, the song was very John Mary, kind of like, uh, you know, you know, rock, jazz, folk, that weird thing that he, that blues. The singer-songwriter thing. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, so I think that, yeah, I, I started getting huge into that and that kind of persisted throughout high school. And I guess I kind of became known in my school as like the guy that, I, there was like two or three people that had bands in the school. And, and like, I was one of those people and, and, uh, and, that was kind of like, you had this kind of like, you know, you're, you're 16, 17 years old. So you don't fucking know anything out there. You know, that you're like one of the best in your school. And so you're just like, you just know, you just know that. So you're like, I'm going to fucking be the next John Mayer, all this kind of shit. And like, <laughs> and then, you know, you, you go off to college and then, and then you get into a school with, you know, 5,000 kids that were all that exact same thing. And then all of a sudden it's just like, Oh, okay. Time to start at the bottom again. Like, yeah, you're not special, kid. That's cute that you play guitar, but you're not special. Exactly. You're not fucking special. What was the name of your first band? Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) It was uh, (laughs) was pretty, it's, it's pretty egocentric. I actually, my, uh, my key, the keyboardist I had at the time, we actually talked uh, pretty recently. It was probably like six months ago or so. I was like, Jesus Christ, dude, I'm so sorry that I put you through all that. But it was called the Jack DeWitt band. Just like, 
just like my first name, middle name is, and it's just a horrible name for a band. And I ran it like a dictator and I was like, this is my band. Yeah. It was so bad. It was so bad. You didn't but, name it. You didn't use your last name, which no. would have been the cardinal rule because I am going to ask you officially how to pronounce it because I was afraid to try and do it wrong. Uh, it's under Koffler. Okay. Under Koffler, which is, uh, it derives from this German word called Unterkoffer, which meant like middle class. And then if you had ER at the end, I learned this on Ancestry.com. I'm not actually smart, but the, uh, the, it, it was like meant like upper middle class. And so, uh, so my middle name is Flemish for blonde. And then my first name legally is John, even though I go by Jack. And it meant uh, God is great. So it's like, if you put my name together, it means God is great, blonde, and upper middle class. Wow. So there's a little fucking tidbit of information for you. So when we said you were white, like we weren't kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I just, yeah, I just, they, you go to like the deepest, darkest part of Europe, and that is, that is where my lineage is. Not a, not a bit of melanin in my body. I, uh, I've been doing that whole ancestry thing with my sister as well. And like, you know, there's a lot of the family that like our grandparents, like we're first generation. And so like, you can only trace them back so far, but yeah. tracing my mom's side of the family and my, my grandmother's side specifically, we're back 13 generations in Massachusetts, Holy serving shit. under general George Washington in 1789. Oh my God. Like it's unbelievable what you can you are find through and through just in the core. <laughs> like my family is so habit forming that they came over. We still don't know when they got here. We haven't gotten to the point where we've been able to find a ship's manifest to find out when they actually stepped foot on the land. We don't know. And May, what you think, what Mayflower over or under? We don't, I mean, it's got to be right around that time because <laughs> yeah. they've been here for, yeah, 13. And the only reason we know that is that somebody in the family in the twenties filled out an application for entrance into the sons of the American revolution. And you had to prove direct lineage to someone that fought in the revolution in order to get into the sons of the American revolution. And this was in no 1920s. Way. And we got a copy of the form that had eight generations behind the guy that filled the form out. So no. we've been able to dig up all of this stuff. And like, I have a very proud military history in my family anyway. And okay. so, so now we're trying to get service documents and stuff from that far back. But it's unbelievable what technology, A, allows you to figure out, and B, I feel bad for the poor people that had to scan all those census documents and all those immigration oh. forms. <laughs> it's crazy. It is wild. It is wild when you do like do that kind of digging and then you find like some sort of scan document of like, you know, your parents came through this thing. It's like, here's the paper somebody, when they came through Ellis Island and you're like some poor intern getting paid eight fifty an hour to just sit there and scan documents. That's and what I'm saying. Them. That's what I'm oh. saying. I know. And you can kind oh. of do the same thing. Like you're talking about, you know, where you go from Frank Sinatra, earth, wind and fire, and you get exposed to Bob Dylan 
and then Bob Dylan to Jimi Hendrix. And then all of a sudden, Jimi Hendrix, and then your world starts to open up, and it's like we all have this evolutionary diagram of like how we're tied to rock music. And how we got where we, where and, we are. And how you've, you've, like, you somehow were able to go from, like, Dylan and Hendrix, and you, you, you got off the John Mayer off-ramp, and then you somehow got back on the cool highway again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, I'll stand by John Mayer. He can fucking play. No, and he that can, and he can write a great music. song. Like, I'm not taking anything away from him. It's- no, I, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. No, yeah, it's fucking crazy. I think what turned me off from John Mayer was actually being at Berkeley. And once you realize that it's like everybody's obsessed with John Mayer and that like John Mayer kind of defined the Berkeley sound of music, it's that was like, because like Berkeley has a particular sound. I don't know how many Berkeley musicians like you've been around or like listened to, but there's like a certain like level of like jazz singer songwriter pre- pretentiousness. Is that your mom? She telling you she's selling your first guitar? That's weird that you said that. That actually was my mom. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's calling me. She's calling me, probably to tell me, uh, I don't know, not to drink or something like that. <laughs> Which you are, because I can see you doing it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm living up Cinco de Mayo right That's now. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to talk about the Berkeley experience, right? So you're in high school. You got your, you, you got your band you named after yourself. And... You figure out that, you know, you're a songwriter and that like you might you might be good at this thing. At what point do you say this is what I want to study in school? And what is the application process like to go to a music school? Um, so I first discovered what Berkeley was probably the beginning of my senior year because I had no fucking clue what I was like I was a pretty I was a pretty uh average student and um I, I didn't really try in school or anything like that because I was obsessed with guitar and that was all I cared about but I didn't really know what you do with that because I was I lived in a massive military town where it was like you either joined the sh- you either went to the shipyard and started working or you joined the military and so those were the things that I was thinking about and I didn't know that you could do something with music or go somewhere. And so when I heard about this college, I was like, okay, well, I can appease my parents by getting a degree and go do music. Like, I don't know anything about anything, but it'd be good to be around other musicians. And what town so, were you talking about, by the way? What'd you say? What town were you talking about, by the way? Uh, it's a town called Hampton, Virginia. It's right outside of Norfolk and Virginia Beach. And yeah that's, yeah, that's what I was getting to. Yeah, I wanted to know what military town you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. North Hampton roads. It's like, we have everything, everything there. But, um, so I applied to Berkeley. It was the only college I applied to. And I was like, you got in man. Fuck me. I know. (laughs) Oh my God. I was like, I'm getting into this school or I'm joining the army. Like one of the two, it's like, I'm just going to figure it out as I go along. This will be a sign for me, whatever. And, uh, I, I got accepted into the spring semester and I was like, holy shit. Okay. And the application process, I sent an application. They said, come up for an audition. I went up there and I completely butchered the audition. I don't know how the fuck I got it. And like, to be honest, like I'm, I think that 
I think that Berkeley was probably being like, we need to like modernize and like make, you know, we need to increase our profit margins to just let fucking anybody. in. I think I was probably like the first wave of that shit. And, uh, and, uh, but just, I did the interview and the audition and they were like, yeah, you can come in the spring. And I was like, okay, cool. So I just got to waste like the summer and the fall and then I'll, I'll, I'll be going. And then I got a call like two and a half weeks before the fall semester began. And they were like, we have, we have open slots in the classrooms. If you can get up here, you can start in the fall if you want. And I was like, oh shit. And so I knew one person in Boston. Her name was Neha. I went to high school with her and she was studying at Northeastern. And I was like, do you know anybody that needs a roommate? And they're like, I've got a couple of friends. I ended up and I messaged them. They're like, yeah, come on up. And so I, I got this room and I ended up there's Living nothing creepy place. about that at all, by the way, that like you're just going to move in with a total stranger from out of town. Oh, like, yeah, that's I know. All those I know. Movies like those A&E, you know, lifetime movies about people getting slaughtered and stuffed in a closet begin. Oh, yeah, I totally I totally could have been a murder raper, rapist, m- raperist. <laughs> yeah, I could have been fucking. I could have been, fucking, I could have been anything. This chick, was just like, this chick was just like, fuck it. You'll pay seven fifty. Get in here. And uh <laughs> Ended up living with like half the Northeastern rugby team. And uh, that'll keep you sober. Yeah. Or yeah, maybe, maybe not. But yeah. the, uh, but uh, enjoyed my first semester there. Just had a lot of fun, met a lot of people and uh, met the people that would eventually form Dead Poet Society, like everybody in the band. And uh, yeah, so that was kind of the application and the start of it. My high school boyfriend um, went to Berkeley out of high school. And oh, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic drummer. And, you know, I'm honored to be able to call Mike Mangini a friend who is, you know, the, one of the greatest drummers on the planet who was an instructor there for a long time. So it, I'm just always curious about what people's experience was like because, you know, if you're on the West Coast and you say you go to Berkeley, it means one thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. And if you're on the East Coast, you say you go to Berkeley. It means something totally different. Yeah. 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 And uh, funny enough, when I graduated, the teleprompter or whatever, the little subtitles closed captioning thing, I'm getting a little tipsy. The uh, closed <laughs> captioning thing at the top of the above the uh, presenter, they kept spelling Berkeley wrong and everybody everybody would start like laughing every time. Because they time thought you were going to the to the, the California hippie college and not because you were a musician. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like kind of Berkeley's one of those schools, like if you know, you know. But like, but like when you say Berkeley, everybody thinks you mean you see Berkeley. Yeah. Um being <clears throat> at Berkeley offers you some interesting opportunities sometime. And a couple years ago I went and saw the cult at the House of Blues. <clears throat> and they didn't want to tour with a string section because they only needed strings for like one or two songs. So they brought a string quartet from Berkeley to play on stage with the cult and play Edie. And I'm sitting there watching these college kids play with the they, they first of all they, they just they mowed it down. They were so good. But I guarantee you every single one of them was shitting their pants. I well that's that's what I'm getting at. So you go there, <laughs> right? And you're just trying to hone your skills and become a better songwriter and a better player and learn theory and, and all of that stuff. Did you ever have an opportunity like that where like you're just in school and they're like, Hey, besides accosting Mark Tremonti, like, 
avatar for Alter Bridge. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I got to say that, like, to be honest, no, no. Because there's like this whole, you know, the going to Berkeley was such a confusing thing. It's such a, it's such a catch 22 because <clears throat> music school in general is kind of an oxymoron. It's like, there's, you're going to school to create, but you can't really teach creation. It's all, that's all feeling. That's in 100% everything about it is feeling. So you learn all these like technicalities of like, of like uh, theory and, you know, all of these great musicians, how they wrote things, but it all explains the process of creation, but doesn't give you any insight into creation itself. Well, that has to be in you, right? Yeah, that just has to be in you. And it's your job and only on you to sit there and dive into that. Because like the greatest of the greats just take inherent human truths and feelings and emotions and boil them down to their essence and then learn to express that through the music, lyrics, and melody to get you to feel exactly what they were feeling. Like that's what the best of the best do. Well, I was blown away when I, I had Nuno Betancourt on the show. I've known Nuno for decades. Mm -hmm. When he told me he didn't know how to read or write music, I almost fell over Hmm. because he's such an amazing guitar player. I just assumed that that's, how he created, and it's all by ear for him. It's all by feel for him. And I was like blown away that he didn't write the mute, that, that that's not how his process works. I, to be honest, I envy that. I envy people who don't know anything technical about music because in a way it, it, it just creates this, like this thinking in the left side of your brain that just needs to shut off in order for you to create something. I mean, you cannot think about things. There's this amazing quote from this uh, neurologist named Jane Taylor. It's my favorite quote of all time. And she has this amazing Ted talk where she, where she had a stroke and she goes on stage and talks about what it's like to be a neurologist and have a stroke. That's crazy. It's, it's insane. You should look up the Ted talk. It's, it's amazing. And in this, she goes through the story of, of, of waking up one morning and like the left side of her body's not working. And she's like in this la la land. And then it would snap back in. She'd be like, Oh my God, I'm having a stroke. I need to, I need to call the police. And then it would kick in again. And she'd be like, Whoa, this is fascinating. Like I'm feeling parts of my brain turn off. And what that taught her was that uh, she said that Although we like to think of ourselves as thinking creatures that feel, biology tells us that we're feeling creatures that think. And music is a direct expression of that feeling before thinking. And that's something that you can't really find at Berkeley and that people who don't know anything about music, I envy so much because they don't, they don't think about it because there's nothing to think about. They They just just feel it. Yeah. They just feel it. They just listen. And so that's why, I mean, that's like, I know, like, I think Dave Grohl said the same exact thing. He doesn't know anything about like the technical side of music. 
and yet he can, you know, he's written some of the fucking top selling songs in the world and, and just amazing music. And, and so like, that was, you know, that's not, I mean, but the catch 22 is that I found my band at Berkeley, you know, I found the people that I would play music with and we were never part of like the, this popular click of like Berkeley where you get these opportunities to like go and, you know, play for musicians or get filmed doing something because we realized very early on that it was to make you think that, that there is this, like, that there's this like thing you need to learn, you get a degree and then you're, and then you're set kind of thing. It's not that, it's not that at all. It's, well, that it's, was a generational you know, thing too, that the, I think like the baby boomer generation, the idea of being able to go to college, that was like something you wanted for your children because in that era, if you went to college and graduated, you were guaranteed this great job out of college. And mm-hmm. I remember, you know, I was the same kid. All I wanted to do was listen to music, learn about bands, like all of that stuff. I didn't have the musical ability, but I was just obsessed with music too and was bored in school and all that. So I thought I would go and work in a recording studio. That's what I thought I was going to do originally. was like I wanted to be behind the giant console knowing what all the knobs did, right? Like I was going to be in a Motley Crue video or something. That was like the idea I had. I did an internship, you know, not scanning, you know, documents from Ellis Island, but uh, we recorded a 27-piece mariachi band all summer, and I was like, this is not the Motley Crue video I was promised. No, no. And it just so happened, ironically, that it was around the corner from a radio station, and I was delivering tapes to the radio station one day and got sucked into it. And that's how it happened. And it's like, it, it it puts you on that journey where sometimes you have to learn what you don't love to figure out what it is that you do love. That is so true. You know? And like the other thing is they say that the musical ability comes from the part of the brain. That's also good at mathematics, which is not a feel. Math hmm. is, math is, is thinking, not feeling. And same thing with language. Like they say it's the same. I'd be curious what that neurologist you were talking about said, because yeah. it, it, it supposedly exercises the same part of the brain, language, music, math. Do you think that, I mean, maybe math is, is a, is a um, sort of a uh, auxiliary part of that original language speaking thinking part. I mean, it's, it's not to say that it's not to say that we don't think, but it is to say that we feel before we do think. Right. Yeah. And that's, it's, it, it could be about pattern, you know, mathematics when you, I mean, you boil it all down, right. It's, it's all like the ones and zeros, which is, which is basically the most primal of beats. So maybe it Mm -hmm. does, in some way all go back to that same evolutionary like past and, and right. maybe, maybe just our, our way of figuring things out because I mean, they do have to, they do have to work simultaneously. I mean, because the thinking part keeps us alive. The feeling part keeps us, uh, I guess, amongst our, yeah. our tribes. Fulfilled and, and, and in a and commune well, kind of, I yeah. don't know. This is way more cerebral than I thought we were going to get, dude. <laughs> yeah, I love this shit, though. Uh, so at, at can you tell me, I look at a band like I look at a good relationship, right? And I've asked many incredibly successful rock stars with longevity of career whether it's harder to keep a band together or a marriage. They always say band. 
Hmm. And I, so they so so anybody can always tell the story of the day they met their soulmate. Like I can tell you the day I met my husband. What was it like meeting your band members? Because you're now in a marriage, whether you like it or not. Hey, I would call it a marriage. Um, what was it like meeting my band members? Like, where uh, were you guys? Were you guys just these outcasts at Berkeley? Like, what made you guys want to hang out? What made us want to hang out? It's it's so it's so weird because there were so many elements that lined up for it to happen. Like, there were so many coincidences. Like, <clears throat> I met I met this guy named Landon uh, Landon Trimble, and uh, he's one of my one of my best friends. He lives in Canada and. Uh, he was the original drummer for Dead Poet Society. But I met him in a class at Berkeley and he just happened to live right next, the, literally the door down from Jack, who the other Jack in our band, who's our guitarist. And then at the same time in another class, I met a kid named Peter Chun, who another one of my close friends, he um he was roommates with Jack. And so I would hang around Landon and hang around Peter quite a bit. And Jack was, he had him, he had his friend who was our original bassist, Nick. They always hung out, were always around each other. And so our two groups never really meshed. I think Landon was kind of like the tie between the two, but like Peter and I would do our own thing. Jack thought I was some sort of like fucking douchebag <laughs> that would come into his room all the time. I don't know. I, maybe I give off those vibes. I don't fucking know. But like he thought I was just some douche. And like, then he heard me sing one day and their, and their singer had left, just left the band. And this was probably like, six or seven months into knowing Landon really well. And uh, I actually convinced him to leave the band too. So they lost their singer. And then I convinced the drummer of Dead Poets Society to leave the band because I thought that they were so bad. (laughs) And there was actually a meme going around at our school. I've told this story on a bunch of interviews, but never in this depth. Uh, There was a there was a meme going around our school saying um, dead poet society, the worst thing to come out of Berkeley since Kate Cameron and Kate Cameron was this other chick there that was just also getting fucking shit tons of hate. And so I was, I was concerned for Landon at the time. And I told him, I was like, dude, you got to get out of the band. You got to get out of dead poet society. They're so bad. <laughs> Lo and behold, Jack was getting ready to ask me to join hey, the band. Um, yeah. To join the band. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, Oh, geez. And he was like, just come sing on a couple things. We, we want to record an album or like an EP and we need a singer and I like your voice. And so I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Like, fuck it. Like, let's do it. Um, you know, I'm, I, I was trying to be nice and like, I hung out with the group all the time. So I was like, okay, yeah, sure. I'll come. And I came and sang on a few of those songs. And then I kind of tried to ghost them in a way because I was just kind of like avoiding the texts and stuff like that. And, and, um, Nick and Jack kept asking me to come write and like come to like sessions and stuff like that. And I was kind of avoiding it. And my friend Peter and my other friend Niles, who I had moved in with by this point, who was Landon's roommate at the time, uh, were like, no, dude, you don't want to join that band. They fucking suck, dude. 
And I was like, yeah, I know that, that just like, whatever, whatever. And then Nick shows up on my porch one day, just shows up at my apartment and is like, Hey dude, what are you doing? I'm like, Stage five oh, clinger. Yeah, I know who should have seen the signs, but he, uh, <laughs> he was like, do you want to write? And I was like, fuck. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah, that's right. And we went upstairs and he was like, what do we write about? And I was just like, I don't know. Let's just Google something. And we, we ended up looking up like some historical story and we're just like, screw it. Let's write about this. And it ended up being the first song we ever recorded and released together. And it's called one, four, five. And, uh, and I remember being like, Whoa, okay. I've never written with people before. This is kind of strange. And this is kind of dope what we came up with. Like, maybe this is something I'm interested in. And Peter and Niles were like, no, dude, don't join it. You got your own thing going on. I was like, no, I think there's something here. And uh, started getting in the room with them more. And we just all kind of clicked and it just made sense. And our drummer, Will, had joined the band like right when I did. And he had a different mindset. He was just like, I want to join any fucking band. Like, I want to get in this. I want to find a band to be a part of. And um then we ended up just being together and, and here we are now. It's crazy that, you know, it, it you tried so hard not to get into it. You tried, <laughs> yeah. you tried so hard and you just, you got sucked in anyway. Couldn't step away. Couldn't step away. Said, what genre should I get into? Probably the one that people least listen to the least in the early 2000s. Yeah. All right, let's get into that one. I'm going to join a rock band with a bunch of really smart, technically savvy musicians. That just screams money signs, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Cha-ching, cha-ching. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Talk to me about going from the process of seeing if you can collaborate with other musicians to going, okay, we're released, like, we're going to write a record. Like... Like, take me from one, four, five to the next step of like the record deal, like the next step of the band. So it was a long process to get from one, four, five to a, to a record deal. It was, it was seven years, seven years of writing and releasing music on our own. And that was all very much a growing period. I mean, it's always a growing period. That's what Bob Dylan said. He said, as an artist, the moment you think you've arrived somewhere, you're done. And, and, um, it was, it was a lot of finding our sound and something that I hold very dear and everybody in the band holds very dear is, is our emphasis on like, uh, letting songs write write themselves, don't have any sort of influence over them, let them come to you. And whether it end up sounding like heavy rock, all folk, you know, metal, whatever, just let it be what it is. And, and then if it's good enough, we'll release it. And so there was a long process of that. And in that time we discovered like uh, the fretless guitar and which is a huge part of our sound and um, getting more into this like dark blues kind of sound that was also mixed with with metal and rock and finding our like alt sound and i think a big problem that we had was that everybody was every label that showed interest in us would also say like they're still trying to find their sound but because of this philosophy we have with writing where you just let the art dictate the art you 
give it as little influence as possible, all of our music sounded very different. You know, we'd have like a song like uh, Swarm, which is just like this sludgy, crazy metal sounding thing. And then we'd have like American Blood, which is just straight up alt rock. And people would think, and the reality of the situation is, is probably we our skill set was just not good enough. We like fucking sucked. And, and they just didn't want to tell us that, but, but you know, if the ego is playing a little bit involved, it's like, no, it's like, whenever we write a song, it ends up sounding like dead poet society. It's just that it has a different shell on it each time. And we're all very ADD in the band. And so when we write a song, the next song has to sound different. Otherwise we're bored of it. And that whole process of, of learning and evolving and writing and becoming the, our, our own artist um, took a long time. And it was a lot of releasing EPs and single after single after single until it got to the point where this, uh, where Bad Flower, who are very amazing people, very generous to us, found us somehow. They were listening to, uh, the lead singer, Josh was listening to Coda. He heard under my skin, which is one of our songs. And then that led him to Coda and he fell in love with that song. And they were looking for a band to take on tour. This is back in 2019. And he brought our band up to the rest of the band. And weird enough, Jack had met the drummer of that band at a show they played at the Viper room, like, in 2017 and had stayed in touch with him. And so the drummer didn't know that the singer had discovered and the singer didn't know the drummer knew Jack and was just like, was just like, wait a second. I know that band. Yeah. I'm friends with the guitarist. And they were like, Oh, fuck it. All right. Let's bring them on tour. And so that brain, them bringing us on tour created this like legitimacy for these like booking agents and record labels to be like, Oh shit. Okay. Maybe this is a band that is worth paying attention to. And one amazing thing that is so unbelievably frustrating about this industry is that people are so much talk and not action. It's like the people you know that you can really trust and put your faith in are the ones that speak with their actions and not their words. Well, that's, so a, that's has, a life lesson, not just an industry lesson. Yes, yes, absolutely. And we had had so many labels just like fucking drag us along for long periods of time, just being like, yeah, you're awesome. The contract is coming. The contract is coming. Contract is coming. Nothing. And then this, this, uh, spine, this label called spine farm actually took action. And they were just like, we fucking love you guys. We get what you're doing. We understand your music and, uh, and we want you, we want to be a part of your team and we want you guys to be a part of our team. And we were like, okay, that makes sense. And so that's, that's just how it happened. But I mean, you have to sift through a lot of people just fucking talking. Just so many people talk in this industry. That tour was probably right after yeah. I saw Bad Flower the first time because the guys from Shinedown took them on tour. And I went yeah. to the Shinedown show at the Pavilion with Dinosaur Pileup. And the guys from Bad Flower had come on my show and played acoustic, and that was the first time I had met them. We had, <clears throat> we had started playing them a few months before, but it's really unbelievable how quickly a band can go from being someone else's opener to then coming to you to open up for them. Like, 
once a band kind of hits, it's amazing how quickly a band can take off. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they, Badflower experienced some like skyrocketing effects with their music, especially when Ghost came out. It's pretty fucking wild to watch how quickly they grew from yeah. us seeing them at the Viper Room in like 2017 to like opening for them and they're drawing like 1,500 people in each state across the country. It's like, what the fuck? So when you talk about letting the art, I, I'm fascinated by the songwriting process. So when you talk about letting the art happen, so give me an example of one of your songs and how it started. Whose idea? Was it a riff or a lyric? Was it a melody? What was it? And how did it become the end product that we can like go now and, and listen to? What is your process like? Our process can be kind of sporadic. It, it really depends because we're always just looking for that, that, you know, writing a song or writing anything in general is just <clears throat> finding that little spark or that little moment that just makes your whole body just like tense up and you're just like, yes, you know, like, fuck yeah, that feels awesome. And then you get enough of those little moments together and then you've got a song. And so wherever that moment comes from changes all the time. And I think that like, if I were to pick a couple songs, for example, like uh, this one song we have called never love myself, like I loved you off the new album. Um, that song sort of started in my room where I was just kind of like, you know, I, I have a lot of issues and struggles with anxiety and depression. And, and I was in a very, very dark place. And this was at the beginning of uh, 2020 before any of the pandemic stuff or anybody even knew about, about COVID. And I was just, you know, I was just like in a miserable state and, we were finishing up the record and almost done. And they were like, do you think you have one more in you somewhere? And we weren't really looking for it, but I was just sitting in my room and I just sang this, like, I'm falling out of touch because I hate myself too much. And that was just like, whoa, okay. And I know like when I write something that I feel, cause like I'll get like this wave of emotion where I'll feel like just like sobbing. And I'm just like, okay, I think I just, said something to myself that is very true to me and I should record that, remember it and keep going on that feeling. And that turned into, I evolved it and kept evolving it and writing more lyrics to it. And I brought it to the band and we continued to work on it to figure it out and feel it. That writing process for those more soft emotional songs is, is pretty different than like, for instance, like a song like Swarm which I brought up again, but that's, or like even, even like salt where Jack will come up with like a, a, a riff that's something on the fretless or some, some sort of thing. And then just give me the track and I'll sing over it and come up with stuff. And you wait for that moment of like, fuck, this feels good or fuck, that sounds good or something like that. And, and you continue to evolve on that. And then sometimes it's just somebody, somebody brings something to the room, like uh, our song, Georgia, somebody just brings a riff to the room. And then in 30 minutes, we have a song, you know, or like the bed of a song. And then we'll go back and write lyrics and melody over it. So it, it starts from all different places constantly. And I think that feeds back into the fact that everybody in the band is so ADD, which has helped us so much in, in writing songs. 
but can't not say in it's life. Very not in life. Not in life. <laughs> not in running a business. Not in running. I got to say, ADD and business don't really work out too well. But you know what? Song creation, it's pretty okay. <laughs> Tell me about naming the album because I look at it like you got to name a baby. Yeah. Like it's a decision. You're right. That's a very good way of putting that. It's very true. It's very true. It's, it's kind of a big decision, especially when it's your first album. Um, I think that it was just so the, the reason why we landed on the dash exclamation point in the dash was uh, I can't remember who wrote the symbol down originally, but we were all trying to figure out like a new logo for the band. And we were just like, all right, what should it be? Like, um, cause we had this, we had this symbol for a while that was like this West African symbol. And, uh, and we just eventually were like, all right, we need to move on from that. Come up with something new. I can't remember who came up with it. It was the dash exclamation point in the dash. And we were just like, cool, that's a cool symbol for the band. And then as the album started getting closer and closer to being finished, we, we were trying to think of like an album name. And I kept looking at that symbol, just being like, that like gives off a vibe. It like, every time you listen to a song and look at that symbol, it seems to fit it. And so we were like, what if the album was just that symbol? I mean, like, let's think about this from like a, from like a marketing standpoint too. Like nobody's going to be able to say the name of the album. Well, that's what I was going to say. There's people like me on the other end of the business that (laughs) we want to play your song. And then we look down because we want to promote the record. And we're like, these fucking guys, how, what are we supposed to say? (laughs) <laughs> you just you just say uh look guys it's a dash an, an exclamation, exclamation point, point a dash, and a dash. Look it up. that's a that's what you just have to say and we were just like fuck like some people are gonna hate us some people are gonna hate us because we like you know our press team is probably gonna be like how the fuck do we tell people how to get and find the album but at the same time we thought like okay well the primary way people consume music is through these streaming platforms and like YouTube and like looking it up online. You can type it super easily. I can type it right here as dash exclamation point dash. So when you see it, you know what it's called. You know how to find it. You might not have like a verbal way of saying it, but you know what it's called. And so we were like, fuck it. Let's just go with that. And then we'll let the fans name whatever they want to name it. Um, what's the plan for the band coming out of COVID? Because everybody, there's been these debates. Do we release our record or not? Do we try to do shows or not? Do we wait to release and try to break a band in COVID? Or do we hold it and wait for the world to come back? So what was the thought process for the last year about trying to break your band? And then what's the plan when like the floodgates fucking open, which we're all waiting for? Uh, the plan right now is it's just like, that was a huge discussion, constant discussion. We actually delayed our album quite a bit because of it. <clears throat> it's weird. It's weird. There's no really right answer. Nobody's really figured anything out. You're just kind of doing it because it is what it is, you know, be what it do. And, and, and uh, we, we decided to, you know, March was good. We couldn't push off the album anymore and we released it. So the plan going forward is like, the second I can step foot on a stage, I will do it. I don't care if it's in Kazakhstan. I will go out 
and I will be playing shows because I fucking love playing shows. And the moment we can tour, we will be touring. So like, as soon as like states start saying like, yo, if you're vaxxed, you can come play a show here and people can come see you. We're hitting the road and that's looking like it's going to be the fall. So maybe late summer if we're lucky. And so that's the plan is that the instant everything opens up, we hit the road. And until then we're, we're already working on album number two. So did you get vaccinated yet? Got my first one. Yeah, me too. I haven't gotten the second one yet. Yeah, I'm just waiting for the third testicle to grow in and and then we'll hit the road. My Wi-Fi comes in so good, man. Yeah, I bet it does. You getting all those 5Gs? I heard this great quote. I gotta I gotta make sure I give props where they're due. My friend Frank, who is a front of house engineer, he was on a podcast with a like a, a roadie podcast. And he said, I, I, I'm going to fuck up the quote, but it was so good. He said, I don't care if I got to drink it out of the skull of my dead neighbor that I had to <laughs> suffocate. Give me the vaccine so we can go back to work. That's oh, no, fucking amazing. No, no, he said, he said, I don't care if I have to drink it out of the skull of my dead neighbor that I had to smother to death. That's what he said. And I was like... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Wait, I'm the same exact way. I was like, I don't care. I don't care if my whole body turns into a hemorrhoid. Just fucking give me the goddamn shot so that I can leave, so that I can fucking play again. Well, what like, I love is guys all of a sudden right now are like, yo, well, yo, it said you can get blood clots. And I'm like, okay, let me ask you this question, buddy. Um, do you know how many women die of blood clots for birth control pills, you don't have any problem asking your girlfriend to take those, do you? No. True. No. Like, just Not read the warning label on a pack of birth control pills, and it's enough to scare the shit out of you. And for some reason, that's not a big deal. No. Because no. guys don't want to get a girl pregnant. Take the pill. It's not a big deal. And even then, I heard it was like, I know the Johnson & Johnson one's, like, not even effect, not even that effective, but, like, wasn't it only like six people that got the blood clot? Yeah, it thing? was like, like nothing. A like million? Yeah, like there are so many more women that literally die of blood clots from birth control pills. That's why I'm saying it's like it's just like this is the fucking thing, is it's all the media. It's all just like, what are you gonna talk about? Like they're grasping at straws because it's like they wanna get clicks to their page. So they're gonna just say some wild shit to like get things, make you believe that like that like this vaccine is fucking putting every other person out in you know a stretcher and it's reality is like i got the like 99.99 percent of the people who get the vaccine are you get a little headache and then you're done and then you never think about it yeah but then they're like oh like oh i felt like sick and blah 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 it's like yeah well you had 13 shots last you had 13 shots last week and woke up with a hangover and throwing up (laughs) but you didn't question that you're gonna go do that again this weekend but you get a shot Tell me all the ingredients in the tequila. Well, I don't know what's in it. Do you know what's in a McRib? Yeah, you just fucking, you just went out. You just, you've been smoking a jewel for two and a half years. You had no idea what the fuck was in that, but you won't get a goddamn shot. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, All right, so I want to ask you this question. It started actually, ironically, with the Royal Blood guys. Mm Mm-hmm. And it it started as a question that just kind of popped into my head while I was talking to him. And it's become a question that I ask every musician that I talk to now because every single answer has been fantastic. And so I'm going to, I'll pose this question to you. As a songwriter, 
from any genre or artist, no matter the band or artist at all, what's a song that you wish you wrote and why? Read My Mind by The Killers. How come? That song, when I was talking about how there are those moments when you're writing music, or at least when I'm writing music, that if I get this wave of emotion where I feel like I'm going to fucking start bawling and hit that truth for myself, that song, no matter how many times I've heard it, no matter where it's, where it is, like it could be playing in a fucking grocery store, in a stop and shop somewhere. It could be in a Target commercial. It could be in a Target commercial. Doesn't matter anywhere. That song always without fail brings up that emotion for me every single time. I can only listen to that song in certain places because it's, it, it does that for me every single time. And so I, what is it? Is it the, is it the lyrics? Is it the tone? Is it, what is it? It's everything. Everything about that band is just so incredible. It's like they, they cornered this really amazing way of writing, of writing, um, of writing in a very melancholic way. They have this, these beautiful, very inspiring, happy instrumentals with sad, sad lyrics. And, but they're, they're not sad, they're melancholic. And, and, and it's just this weird line of like hopefulness and, and like, of, and despair. And, and they do it in such a beautiful way that, that just every single time just connects home for me. And it could, it, could be the lyrics it could be the melody I just I don't know it goes beyond what I was saying about thinking it's just like one of those things where it's just you feel it and you don't know why you feel it you just do and uh what was that one lyric there's one part in the song where it's just, it, he like um when you open the door don't let it sting I want to breathe that fire again and and that that part of the song is just like it's so yeah, I think that would be, if it was one song that I wish I could have written, it would be Read My Mind by the Killers. See, I told you the answers are always good. <laughs> yeah. All right, one final question. When are you going to finish painting the room you're sitting in? Because there's blue painter's tape all over everything and it's been driving me crazy the whole time we've been talking. Yeah, you actually want to see this? So I am, so uh, two of my friends are moving to this beautiful place that's basically like, Cape Cod. It's, it's like Woods Hole Falmouth Cape Cod of the West Coast. It's called Morro nice. Bay. Yeah. And they uh, are moving everything out of here, but they really haven't moved everything yet. They're still kind of working on it, but like they left a bunch of shit and the painters came and they tried to get all this, the room painted, but they couldn't get it fully painted. I'm helping them set up their Airbnb. So I'm just kind of staying here right now. And, uh, <laughs> and so I think it's happening Monday. We'll have to see. I was going to compliment you on that beautiful shade of seafoam green on the wall behind you. Yeah, it's the only thing that doesn't blend into my skin. <laughs> it was so nice to meet you. Likewise. Um, I, I knew that I was going to enjoy it. And I knew that no matter you know how young you were when you moved out of town, that that Boston was going to come out in you. And it's there <laughs> in, the, it's there in the, the, the sass and the sarcasm 
That's why you get to call yourself a Bostonian no matter where those formative years were spent because you, you've got the sarcastic attitude that what it means at the essence of being a Bostonian, and you got it. That means a lot to me. Thank you so much, Carrie. Let me, <laughs> let me just say, this is not me blowing smoke up your ass. Like This has been probably my favorite interview that I've done so far. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate I, uh, you having me on. I, I spent a lot of a lot of years just on the radio. And one of the things that I have I have discovered about podcasting is that sometimes you like with a radio interview, it's like, look, you know, we're playing your music. I want to hear about the record. We got to talk about the tour. And that's about the whole window of time that you get. And when I decided to launch the podcast, I wanted it to be like a rock lifestyle podcast that that we're all in in this together like it the music is what binds us just because you're a musician it doesn't mean that you're in a different place than me because we both are fans of other bands and so Mm -hmm. we're all experiencing this music and the people that make it the people that make the instruments the techs that plug the shows all in and the the record company people, all of the people in that universe all contribute the, you know, the radio side, the promotion side, all of it. Mm -hmm. And what I've, I've experienced, this is episode 50 and what I've experienced. I know. Yeah. And, and what I've experienced is the conversations always go in places I didn't expect them. And I never would have been able to take that, John Mayer off ramp and get it back on again. If I didn't have this platform. Yeah. You know that it, that it's even though it's impersonal because we're looking at each other through a computer screen, Mm -hmm. it's just way more personal to be able to kind of have those real discussions about things that, that that's, those are the conversations that I want to hear about. You know those what I mean? Those are the things I want to talk about. I mean, yeah. like, I mean, those, those are the things that actually interest me when we get into these little side digs and whatnot. Cause I can answer, I can answer, you know, like the fucking same 30 questions over and over and over and over in every interview. But, but like, I just got to say like, you've done it. And I mean, you're very good at what you do because this Thank has been you. all very natural. It hasn't felt like an interview. It's felt like I'm just, you and I are at a bar just fucking drinking and having some fun. And that is exactly what I feel like it should be. Well, uh, I will leave you with this. So after the radio station that I worked at WAF for 22 years went off the air, the first thing while I was building MCHQ, which is my studio, um, I started a video show called cocktails in the war room. And the war room is a room in my house that has all the family military memorabilia stuff and and like all of my stuff in it. And every Tuesday night at 8.30, we get together, I go on live and we bring guests in via Skype and we have cocktails and we talk about whatever. And so what happens is when I have somebody come on the podcast, we give the audience, you know, a few weeks or whatever to be able to listen to the podcast episode. And then I try to bring people from the podcast into the war room because now the audience has questions. And you get to drink with us and you get to hang out with us. So I'm officially inviting you into the war room after this podcast episode comes out so that the fans can meet you and you can answer their questions. I would fucking love to do that. Awesome. I'm going to take you up on it because the war room is the war room. Imagine an online support group of people that rode through the pandemic together. It started May. uh, I mean, March of 2020. We did 80 shows in a row. Every night at 8.30, we got together. Holy shit. 
Then we turn the show into a weekly show, and we're at now, I think, episode 132. <clears throat> wow. And it's crazy. And it's just, it's the same kind of thing where it's like we talk about whatever's going on, and we bring guests in, and it's it's fun. We have a good time. So I'm officially inviting you into the war room. You let me know when it happens, and I'll be there. Awesome. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. It was so great to meet you. And I look forward to us being able to introduce ourselves in person. Absolutely. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully soon. sooner than later. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. All right. We'll talk to you later, Jack. Thank you. Bye, Carrie. Have a good one. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. There he is, Jack Undercoffler from Dead Poet Society. Their new album, dash exclamation point dash is available everywhere if you're looking for dead poet society online in the show notes of this podcast all of the links to find the band their website and social media handles are all there as is a link to the corresponding playlist so that you can hear all of the music that we talked about in this episode you'll also find all of my links as well So if you liked what you heard, click subscribe so you don't miss anything from the Mistress Carrie podcast. Full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the Situation Report with all of your rock headlines and music news and industry info in less than five minutes. And if you don't mind, leave us a five-star review and a comment so I know what you thought of the episode. You can join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern for Cocktails in the War Room on my Facebook page. Huge thanks once again to our sponsors, Digital Federal Credit Union at dcu.org slash careers because they're hiring. And of course, mistresscarry.com. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.